Welcome to Call Your Girlfriends, <laughs> a podcast for long distance besties everywhere. I'm Amina Tuso. And I'm Ann Friedman. What's up, baby? Oh, you know. Listen, the correct answer to what's up is nothing but the rent, baby. <laughs> <laughs> um, I love it when like old black folks say that. It always makes me very happy. It is, it is an always true response. Like that's <laughs> the thing about it. Yeah. I was like, it was true forever ago and it's true today so it's great uh, are you ready for the interviews in today's episode listen you did all the work so i'm very ready alert and ready tell me tell me everything well today's episode is all about white fragility <sighs> and what happens when white people are presented with uncomfortable realities for them about race and the way it operates in our society and the way they operate in a racialized way in society, especially white people who consider themselves progressives or feminists and or feminists. That is what today's episode is about. You know, nothing but the rent, baby. <laughs> <laughs> Robin D'Angelo, who is an academic, a tenured professor of multicultural education, who knew that was a position, Love at it. Westfield State University. And she comes from a background of doing a lot of diversity and inclusion trainings in corporate environments. And she noticed this thing that would happen when she talked about race with a group of, let's say, like 99 out of 100 employees or like 96 out of 100 employees being white the reactions they had when she tried to talk about the realities of the ways that race has shaped our society and about racism as a force and about whiteness as a thing, they would just freak out. Like this defensive behavior that I, um, I know is everyone who is listening to this podcast who is a person of color is like, yes, duh, obviously. Ooh. I don't know if that's your reaction to that. You know, some of my best friends are white. <laughs> My doctor is a white person. My banker is a white person. I don't know what you're talking about. Um, that's so interesting. You're like, you're right about that. And it's something that like, it took me a really long time to understand what was going on with that. And I realized that it's because, oh, people who are not white actually talk about race all the time. It's like, we're racialized people. And so I never realized that like, that was not true for people who are not um, of beautiful colors. So it had just like never occurred to me. Right. The melanin deficient are often not culturally and socially pushed to think that this is an idea that they have to have any kind of feeling about whatsoever. Like this is part of what her work is about. But anyway, so this rea these reactions, these like defensive and angry reactions that she was noticing over and over, she spent a lot of time thinking about like, where does this come from? And eventually wrote an academic paper that later became a book, terming it White Fragility. It also seemed totally misrepresentative to have this conversation about white fragility without having an equally important conversation about the ways that white fragility is experienced by people of color and in particular women of color. Are you familiar with Rachel Cargill? Yeah, this is her her story and and the parallel to like talking to Robin D'Angelo is really fascinating. Yeah, so Rachel, I became acquainted with her work on Instagram, as I think a lot of people have. She 
uh, is at rachel.cargle, C-A-R-G-L-E. And she's an activist and a writer currently attending Columbia University. And recently, after the murder of Nia Wilson, which do a Google if you do not know the name Nia Wilson, she noticed that she was not seeing a lot of conversation about this woman and about the injustice of her death on accounts associated with prominent feminist voices who happen to be white. And so she ran a campaign that was like, hey, maybe what you could do is ask your white feminist fave to talk about this woman and to talk about this issue. And like, let's see if we can't bring some more attention to it. And as a result, a few people got very, very angry. Um, and Which people got angry, Anne? Well, you know, good question. <laughs> Who got angry? You know, they were white women. They were white feminist identified women. You know, fragile and angry. What a conundrum. Listen, and so, so she had a lot to say about not only this experience. Um, I hope I did not, you know, give away the punchline, though. But like, look, sounds like you might have been able to guess the punchline anyway. <laughs> so Robin D'Angelo is kind of she is this academic who's looking at like a big phenomenon and writing in pretty, pretty broad terms, although she does talk about her personal experience in the book. And Rachel is a person who's experiencing white fragility in a violent and direct way and is experiencing it in real time online. And I think that talking to her as someone whose work is rooted in social media is particularly interesting on this question because it is such a like real time and public facing way to do this work. Rachel, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you so much. For people who are unfamiliar with your work, maybe you can talk a little bit about who you are and what you do by way of introduction. Yes. My name is Rachel Cargill. I'm currently living in New York City and attending Columbia University. A lot of the work that I do is public on social media. I don't know, whatever millennial social media life is. <laughs> and um, But my a lot of my work is public and it's the intersection of race and feminism. So I basically just facilitate a lot of intellectual discourse and really meaningful conversations around what it's like to be a black woman and what it's like to be a black woman feminist and just how feminism works and looks through the lens of race. Yeah, I want to um, talk about maybe a specific example of that experience that you're talking about with being a facilitator and a, and a leader and someone who's like really advancing that conversation and your perspective on Instagram in particular. So maybe you could talk a little bit about what happened after Nia Wilson was murdered and you put out a call for more attention and frankly, like outrage as a, as a result of that. Yeah. So after the murder of Nia Wilson, I realized that a lot of my feminists friends and people who call themselves leaders in the feminist movement on their various platforms weren't really talking about it, even though it was a tragic death of a woman in such a vicious way. And so I kind of just reposted something that I saw that put a call out asking, you know, where's your favorite white feminist and how come she's not talking about Mia Wilson? And a lot of my followers began to tag a lot of the women who they were like, yeah, why haven't I heard from you? Where are you at on this conversation? And it was incredibly interesting because there were people who were seeing it and they were just as surprised and outraged, not just at her murder, but also at the way that media wasn't covering what had happened, even though it was so specifically 
um, race-based and so specifically tragic that such a young woman would have been, literally, she was just stabbed on a, on a like Metro platform. And so a lot of them who were tagged stood up and said, yes, I hadn't heard of this. I'm just outraged that media isn't covering it, but I'm also outraged um, and demanding justice alongside you. But then there were also a lot and a few cases in particular where there was tons of defensiveness and tons of just being offended that they had been called out in such a way where we were questioning what their stance was in feminism and whether they were really here for all women or they were there for women who looked and experienced life like them, regardless of how much they claimed inclusivity, they claimed intersectionality. We were calling them to show that in that moment. And there was a lot of very interesting, interesting backlash at the way that they were caught into this conversation. Yeah. And, and maybe you could talk a little bit about what that looks like, because I think that an experience that white women who are talking about politics online have maybe had is like a man saying, "Ugh, like, how dare you say that this is something that I need to care about or like have a defensive reaction toward them. And I think that often it can be hard to recognize a like what that behavior looks like and the effect that that has and so maybe without without naming names but just kind of describing the general tenor of like the the sort of more backlashy responses could you talk about like what what you were hit with in response and and what effect that had on you and how you felt yeah I think that what you're referring to and it's so interesting as a black feminist activist, I've learned, unfortunately, that a lot of the white women that I talk to refuse to really accept what's happening in terms of race and feminism, unless it's put in the light of the patriarchy Mm. and men and how they've been treated by men. It seems to be so hard for white women to accept that they are both oppressed by the patriarchy, just as all women are, but they're also oppressors to black women and black communities as a part of a country that was built on white supremacy. And so there's a lot of frustration and confusion and like just this internal grappling that white women are dealing with right now as they're being called to recognize these things. And it really showed up in this instance where they had to realize that they might have been part of the problem and us black women were calling them to task in order to really display the intersectional feminism or the social justice that they claimed they were a part of. So a lot of the things that show up in these instances are white women often come and say, well, you know, centering themselves in what it is they've done for black people or why they did what they did or why they um, it's like a constant use of the word I and me and my concerning their feelings above all else. That's part of the conversation. And one thing that I always use to combat this and really bring it to light is that when you hurt someone and you step on someone's foot, you don't say, and and they say, ouch, you don't say, oh, I didn't mean to hurt you. So stop whining about it. You don't do that. You say, oh, wow, I'm so sorry I hurt you. You don't explain why you might have hurt them. You don't explain about something in your past that led you to this point of hurting them. You literally make sure they're okay. You say sorry and you move on. And that's something that I read. That was the best example that I can always give around that. There was also a lot of white saviorism, which is often when white people feel like 
anything we've ever done for a black person should be enough. And so in the instance, where we were calling people out, there was this very bizarre listing of a resume of everything they've ever done for a black person. So that should dismiss them from having to do anything now. Everything from I'm nice to the black kids in my neighborhood to I've donated money to the local black college, things like that to where it's like, don't you all know how much I've done for you? And it's just very dismissive of the dynamics of the Black experience to where if we truly are intersectional, we're continuously ensuring that we're all safe and that justice is served for all of us. People ensure that they bring up love in order to dismiss or not have to deal with a lot of the very real, hard, muddy things that are happening. They'd rather dismiss it with, um, you know, telling us, why don't we just love? Why don't we just have peace? Stop being so divisive. When the truth is, we can't ignore things. They're not going to go away just because we ignore them. They're not going to turn into this cloud of love if we just say the word love enough when talking about incredibly hard things like racism. You recently posted uh, an excerpt. Uh, I, I, I believe you said a representative excerpt of some of the emails that you get. The gist of the email is, why not teach instead of chastise? So like the kind of argument, like calling in yeah. rather than calling out. And I think that this hits really close to home, like for me, because like on on the podcast, like we've been talking about race and feminism for years. And I know Amina isn't online right now, but like, you know, my co-host is a black woman. And the reaction that we, first of all, like being able to display different reactions to something when um, yeah. a listener is kind of saying like, uh, don't know about this. Um, we, we've gotten a lot of mail like this too. That's like, hey, why are you being mean to this person who is maybe got potential to change? And I think, you know, one of the responses that, um, that we tend to give is like, you know, it doesn't always do your friends a service to be like, you're great, you're great, you're great. Like sometimes in order to be in solidarity with someone or be in a movement with someone or be in a friendship with someone, you have to say, yeah, guess what? Like, you're not doing great. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and that yeah. is like a hard truth that, you know, you have to hear, be able to accept as well and accept that it's coming from a place of at least some level of shared values if you're both using like this term yeah. feminist. And so, you know, I'd, I'd love for you to talk about that um, calling in versus calling out. Yeah, for sure. Whenever I do those things, and there's always someone who gets offended. And I think that it's really important, especially for my work as an activist, and as a teacher, by showing these examples, we're all learning language to have more meaningful conversations, when this thing continues to show up in conversations with each other in conversations with the public with strangers, as we continue to dissect problematic conversations, it not only calls it out as problematic, but it also says, hey, this is how you continue this conversation. This is how you diffuse it, or this is how you come into it with more meaningful intellectual discourse, as opposed to just arguing back and forth, throwing opinions, things like that. One thing I constantly have to remind people is that holding each other accountable is not calling out. Holding each other accountable is not shaming. Holding each other accountable is not telling one person that they're a bad person and that they need, you know, that they're the worst thing that has ever happened. It's literally saying, hey, I recognize that you want to be a part of this. And in order to be a part of it in the most efficient way possible, this is what needs to happen. And if we look at it in any other aspect of living, I think we all appreciate being held accountable in order to ensure 
ensure that we're really giving our best selves to the greater good. And so when people get offended by being held accountable, I think that it's either showing us that they weren't really wanting to be part of this anyways, or that they still have a lot of growing to do in order to really be a meaningful efficient part of what's happening. And so I think that whenever people start getting defensive, it really is such, it it shows us so much about whether they're a part of work or not. And I think especially for black women, it's so heartening when, when we're looking to ensure a more inclusive feminism for us, because this has been a very racist movement from the beginning, looking at the suffragettes and how um, people like Susan B. Anthony were quick to discriminate against black women, quick to tell black women that they needed to march at the back of the line, quick to throw women under the bus when they were going out to campaign for their own right to vote as white women. And I think that as we Black women are continuing to say, hey, this is what we need in order to ensure that we're being heard if you really are about having an inclusive feminism. And when there's defensiveness to that, there's a lack of trust that happens. And that's that's where it gets scary because it's it's heartbreaking to think that such a needed movement can be an unsafe place for us. Ugh, I don't know. I've been I've been thinking about also in in preparing to talk with you about the way that a lot of your work centers on social media and is therefore about this very public manifestation of these issues, right? Because like, you know, when I think about it, I'm like, okay, there are, there are things that I post about on the internet. There are things that I write about. There are things that I talk about on the podcast. And then there are things that I'm like doing, right? Like, um, which is, you know, obviously writing and talking is a doing as well. But like, I guess what I'm trying to say is like, there's a lot of different layers to, everyone's practice of feminism and and one of those layers is like what are you kind of doing and saying outwardly on social media and one thing that I struggle with sometimes is especially in areas where I feel out of my depth or I'm feeling challenged feeling like okay I need to be in a place where I'm absorbing and learning and reading I am not in a place where I need to be making statements right now and um, particularly with regard to social media yeah, well, I think it's incredibly important for us all to assume a place of listening to people who are marginalized in the same way that it's imperative for me to listen to LGBTQ plus people really hearing their experiences. So I can understand it more listening to Native American experiences. So I can really understand how I can continue to be an ally in the space that I'm working in, looking at race. It's imperative that white people, white women in particular, are able to sit and listen because that sitting and that listening is going to lead to learning, which will lead to you being able to take action that will be meaningful. And so I think it's kind of two sides of the same coin that in order to be able to act as an ally, I always say that empathy is the greatest way to get to the depths of that. And the only way you can indulge in being able to say, Hey, I hear you. I see you. And I want to be able to support you in the way that you need, you know, you need to be supported is through sitting and listening and not letting your ego jump in, not letting the defense mechanisms build a wall that doesn't allow you to really absorb what people are telling you. And I think that people really need to start getting comfortable with discomfort that comes with this kind of work. Because as we do say, okay, I'm allowed to not feel my best in this moment. 
in order to ensure that we all can feel better later on. And it, it really blows my mind that a lot of times the white women who interact with my page, and I say white women specifically because I have a very large following that is about 98% white women. And so that's kind of my, both my online interaction as well as the fact that I'm a black girl who grew up in suburban Ohio with all in a school of all white students. And I was one of the few black students. So this has kind of been my existence and my understanding for a very long time. But it really surprises me often that a lot of the white women that I interact with, they will really truly think that being called in on their racism or being held accountable for their racist acts or their irrational thinking around race, they feel like that's the most offensive thing that can happen as opposed to the actual act they're doing against people of color. And so there's a lot of self-reflection that needs to happen that, that also comes in the sitting and the listening. And then as you continue to do that, you'll be able to make better choices in how you're able to be an ally once you have kind of that education and that intentional understanding of what those more marginalized groups, in this case, Black women, are telling you that they need. What would you tell people who are like, look, I'm still in my place of discomfort and learning. I also feel this pressure to acknowledge that an injustice has happened. What does it look like to do that? Do you expect that from people who are like, um, well, still working through it or like how do you like in a really concrete way like I'm I'm just curious yeah I just think it's in, like use the uplift the voices of the black women who are who are speaking mm. uplift the voice like repost what they've said if you don't know exactly what to say on your own behalf say hey listen to this black woman who's talking what can we all learn from it listen to this person of color who's expressing their experience I'm going to put this on my page in order for us all to see them and hear them and moving forward, continue to do so. So there's going to be a lot of mistakes that are going to be made on everyone's part. And I want it to be clear that, you know, your fear of making a mistake should never silence you from ensuring that you're trying to do the work. But I also think that there's never anything wrong with uplifting the voices of people of color, following them, listening to them, reading their work, sharing their work, and just letting people know that, hey, I'm listening and learning, and I want to hold my community accountable to listen and learn as well. Definitely don't feel the need to answer this question with regard to like making a recommendation to white feminists, but I'm curious about the books that have shaped your thinking about this and the things that are like really helping you and allowing you to find your power when you think about these really hard questions resources? I think that we really all need to recheck our heroes, who our heroes have been. And there's so many problematic people who we've been taught to regard. And so as I'm learning, my resources are often re-looking through history and seeing who the the real heroes are. A lot of um, academic texts that I've been really enjoying, specifically from um, Dr. Brittany Cooper, her Mm -hmm. book Beyond Respectability, has completely given me a renewed sense of the work that black women have been doing for so long. And that's a really great book for people who are interested in where, where some of the foundations of black feminism have come from. And then of course, a lot of the, the, the recent books on race that have been really shaping a lot of the conversation these days, the classics of bell hooks, the classics of Mary church Terrell, the classics of Anna Julia Cooper, um, Nikki Giovanni, all of the black women authors who have been putting down 
hard intellectual discourse around these topics, I think that it's fair for us to go back and say, where have, where has this been happening over and over? What can we learn and continue walking on the trail that these women kind of um, paved the way for us? Uh, yes, absolutely. I mean, you know, we love books <laughs> over here. For listeners who want to engage more deeply with your work, find you online, all of that, how can they do that? Yeah, you can definitely find me on Instagram, which is where I do the most, um, most of my work on Instagram. It's it's at rachel.cargill. I also have a Patreon where I do some more in-depth things and you can find me at Rachel Cargill there as well. I'm currently touring my lecture, Unpacking White Feminism. And um, if you go on my website, rachelcargill.com, you can see my tour dates. I'll be all over the country having um, kind of really meaningful in-depth discussions around the racist history of the feminist movement with the modern manifestations of it looks like now and how we can continue to work towards a more intersectional and inclusive feminism moving forward. Uh, Yes. I also want to note for listeners that you've got um, like a social syllabus and a bookshelf, um, you know, kind of pinned stories to your account. So like for, for like, I have to imagine ongoing resources, that is a great stop. <laughs> um, Definitely. If you, the, the link tree on my Instagram profile has dozens of things that you both work by me, other people, articles I've written, articles, um, articles, book suggestions. And like you said, my social syllabus, which is a um, collection of resources around various topics that is a really good thing to work through when you have, um, when you're just getting started in kind of this journey of understanding and being active um, around anti Uh, Rachel, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much. I really, really appreciate it. This is so fascinating to hear. And the way that you like also set up the interview and when you talk about like this kind of work as work, that labor feels different wherever you stand on the, you know, on the flavor spectrum, as they would say. I'm nodding heavily. I know you can't hear that through the microphone. And, you know, I don't know. it's, It's just giving me a lot to think of about my like, my feelings about how, yeah, like how I feel that I do this work and whether it's like work that I want to do at all. You know, hearing her story, all I can think of is like, wow, I don't even know why you bother to engage with these people because (laughs) I am not surprised that like white women are upset when (laughs) black women ask for things, like basic minimum things. And yet I am always like so heartened and so thankful and like, genuinely like moved that black women do that they do it for no recognition they do it for no money Rachel Cargill doesn't have a book that you know the New Yorker is reviewing like Robin D'Angelo she doesn't she doesn't have all these qualifiers or whatever you know and it's hard work and she she does it that's not a position that I put myself in anymore because in my estimation I was like white people should talk more to other white people about race like talk to me about the rent (laughs) and about you know like other things that I care about because it is, it's like deeply personal and it's also like very painful, honestly.
I talked to um, Robin D'Angelo. Before we go to the interview, I do want to read this little part of her book that talks about the fact that she is a white woman writing mainly to a white audience. And I just, um, I, I want to read the kind of like her thought process behind that choice. Quote, in speaking as a white person to a primarily white audience, I am yet again centering white people and the white voice. I have not found a way around this dilemma, for as an insider, I can speak to the white experience in ways that may be harder to deny. So though I am centering the white voice, I'm also using my insider status to challenge racism. To not use my position this way is to uphold racism, and that is unacceptable. It is a both and that I must live with. Ooh, Miss Robin shaking the table. <laughs> <laughs> so I think I just wanted to read that also because I think that she, I mean, I did the interview with her. I am obviously also a white person. And so like when we <sighs> use terms in the interview, I know you'll be shocked to learn. When we use terms like we in the interview, I think that we're in dialogue as two white people. And also like her book is written, as she says, for a primarily white audience. And so I just want to acknowledge that. So it does not feel like dismissive or alienating to listeners who are who are not part of like that we, frankly. Listen, I'm excited to hear you two in conversation because I like I'm 33. I don't think I've ever heard two white people alone talk about race. So oh it God. is I truly... talk to white people about race all the time. Listen, I'm not there, so I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what you people you people do on your free time. I was excited for you to do the interview because that interview sounds different, like coming from either of us. It feels like an eavesdroppy kind of moment where I was like, a what? Yeah, and she'll you'll hear in the interview she makes the point that she and I, two white women with no no one else around or as part of that dialogue, are having a racialized conversation because like we are both people like with a race. Like we are both people who are steeped in and experiencing whiteness. And so literally every time if you are a white person, you look around the table or you like look around the room that you are in socially and you see only white people, just remind yourself that you're having a racialized experience. That is one of many smart things she said, but I will, uh, I will kick it to the interview now. Robin, thank you so much for being on Call Your Girlfriend. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I want to start off by asking, what is white fragility? And I, I would love if you would, you know, also not just sort of define it, but talk about how you came to the definition and the experiences that led you to, to coin this term. Yeah, it's a term that is meant to capture something that is apparently very, very familiar to many, many people. And I think that's why it resonated so much. So it's meant to capture how often, uh, how defensive we white people are when our positions, our identities, our, our advantages are questioned in any way. The fragile part of that term captures how easy it is to upset us, right? For a lot of white people, the mere suggestion that being white has meaning, much less that you could know anything about me just because I'm white, that will set us off. But it's not fragile at all in its impact, right? So as a white person, I move through the world with a deep sense of belonging, a relentlessly affirmed and validated. My image is reflected back to me virtually everywhere in, in every role. 
I come to feel entitled to that comfort. I come to feel entitled to be seen and responded to as a unique individual outside of my group. At the same time, there are many taboos about talking about race and a deeply internalized sense of superiority. I do not believe any white person grows up in this culture and does not know that it's better to be white. In fact, the research shows that by age three to four, Everyone who grows up here knows it's better to be white. And yet, I'm also told that to acknowledge that would make me a bad person. So all of this kind of makes this irrational stew inside of us. And we just have never had to build our capacity to withstand the discomfort of any of that being challenged. And I think in large part being white means never having to bear witness to the pain of racism on people of color and rarely if ever being held accountable for the racist pain I have caused people of color. So when that comes into question, I lash back. You know, it's a kind of unconscious seeking to regain my racial equilibrium, my racial comfort. But it's not fragile at all in its effectiveness. It's incredibly effective. And I actually think that white fragility functions as a kind of everyday white racial bullying. Uh, We white people so often make it so miserable for people of color to talk to us about our inevitable and often unaware racist patterns and perspectives that most of the time they don't because they risk more punishment. They risk uh, us bursting into tears and them becoming the aggressor and our hurt feelings and our anger and our withdrawal, our minimizing, our explaining. And so they endure it. And in that way, it's a kind of everyday white racial control. And I want to be really clear that none of that has to be conscious, but I'm less concerned with the intentions behind it than I am with the impact of it. Yeah, I mean, and it's interesting too, you know, thinking thinking about some of these responses, you know, I, I think about like human beings often as just wanting to know what script to run. <laughs> you know, like it's, it's like, okay, um, my standard answer to any situation in which I might be confronted with my complicity in like this big racist system is to say, I don't see color or something that is like already rapidly feeling outmoded. And so like maybe people who are younger and like progressive or feminist identified and who are white and who are listening to this are like, I know it's not the right thing to say. I don't see color anymore. But what is the script I run now? And I think that like, it's so tempting, especially in the social media era to default to okay, like, that's the wrong thing to say. What is the right thing to say? And I think we definitely, when we have hard conversations about race, uh, Amina and I on this on this podcast, we get a lot of email that's like, okay, what is the right thing to say? And I, I feel like what you are identifying here is like, that is just the wrong question. Like, the exactly. right thing to say is just like the, the wrong, barking up the wrong tree altogether. Oh, I'm so glad you said that. It's a very disingenuous question. Okay, just tell me the right thing to say. What about your life has allowed you to be a full functioning adult and not know what to do about racism? Mm-hmm. Like, why in 2018 is that your question? When people of color have been telling us for so long, when the information is everywhere. And really, one of the most simple things to break with the apathy of whiteness is go look it up. Take the initiative to look it up. Do a Google, as we like to say. (laughs) And while, you know, that question is meant to be challenging, it's also sincere. 
right? Like really take out a piece of paper and make a list. Why don't you know what to do about racism? And you will have your map because your first thing on there is probably I wasn't educated. The second thing is I don't have an integrated life. The third, I don't talk about race with people of color or even white people. I haven't cared enough to find out, to change any of that. You know, as you can see, nothing on that list is simple, and all of it is complicated and takes an ongoing effort. The other point you brought up was what I think of as default, right? Whenever I have a default response, I'm not thinking strategically or critically, right? So, you know, we're in, I'm in a cross-racial dialogue, and I think, um, oh, I'm, I'm just going to, you know, listen, because I don't want to say the wrong thing. I'll just listen. That's you defaulting to, quite frankly, your most comfortable mode of engagement. You're not paying attention. You're not asking yourself in each moment, what would be the best way to engage in order to move racial justice forward? And sometimes that is, I need to listen. But in the next moment, it might be, okay, I need to show myself. I need to take a risk. I need to meet the people of color halfway that are taking risks. And I'm not going to get that call right by everybody, but that is the call I need to be trying to make. I need to be paying attention. I need to be holding my position as a white person. In other words, really aware. And when I make a mistake in that, then just hold that feedback and, you know, integrate it into the next time I'm uh, struggling to make the determination. Do you see that difference between defaulting into just, I'll just do this versus, really paying attention and thinking more strategically. Right. Well, the the difference between I'm just going to forever only listen and never be a participant Mm -hmm. versus I'm going to listen so that I am better equipped to then put myself at some risk and enter this conversation or like or do something that is action oriented, I think is a super important distinction. And I'm like, I am really taking that to heart myself because I think that, you know, one of the messages that particularly white feminists often get is, you know, you need to listen to what women of color are saying. What should we be centering if we are centering them in this movement? And then the flip side of that is like, but you can't just sit there in silence, (laughs) you know? And so I think that what you're really speaking to is, again, not defaulting to these kind of like scripts, I guess, about like what is like the right thing to do. You know, I wrote an article called Nothing to Add, The Role of White Silence in Cross-Racial Discussions. And I took on every rationale that people give, including I'm an introvert. Too bad, (laughs) to be blunt. This requires something of us. This requires risk-taking, and it can be scary. But what's the worst that's going to happen to you? Come on. I mean, is that whatever degree of scariness, you know, equivalent to, like, what's happening to people of color and the terrorism they live in on a daily basis from, you know, so much of our unconsciousness? Um, I want to talk about a metaphor that you use in the book that I love so much. Hmm. Um, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to paraphrase. I don't think you say it maybe in exactly this succinct way. But essentially, discomfort is a door. Yeah, it's, it, it is a potential Dorian. Um, you know, when you do your best and take risks, you'll make mistakes. And that's where the deepest learning comes from. That's not a comfortable experience. So I often say when I'm in front of a group, if I do a good job today in this talk, the white people are not going to be comfortable the whole time. That If you are, either I did not do a good job, I I simply just upheld the status quo, 
or you've got a pretty thick firewall that you need to look at, you know, that you've blocked out, uh, you know, taking this in. Because racism is not comfortable, and we definitely won't get there from a place of white comfort. And not to be comfortable is pretty much a choice for me as a white person. So in those moments when you feel the discomfort, the question is, what will you do with it? It's an incredible door in, right? Like, oh, great. Okay, I'm feeling completely unsettled. I'm feeling defensive. I'm even feeling resentful or angry. Why? How can that help reveal the meaning-making structure that I'm using to make sense of what you're saying? Use your, your reaction to figure out what you think racism is that you would have that response. And how is it functioning that you want to shut down right now? If you do, who does it serve and what does it serve? It's interesting because we talk a lot um, about friendship as a site of difficult political work or as a place where you can forge and affirm and kind of work out your values and find collective motivation for being better, frankly, or like living those things more authentically. And like, it's, it's really interesting for me, like hearing you talk about that. And something I've been thinking about uh, while reading the book is for me, like, I feel like I have had so many moments of revelatory discomfort as a result of my deep relationships with people who are not white. And it's like, it's a really interesting thing to kind of unpack the difference between just saying, oh, I'm not racist because I have people of color in my life, which is not something I believe, but it is something where I'm like, oh, like it is a, it is a strong motivator for me to do better by people that I love. Like, which is not to say that like, I wouldn't want to examine and work on these issues if I did not love people of color, you know, but like there is an interesting thing happening where not so much proximity, but like, Oh, like, you know, in the same way that thinking about um, patriarchy and sexism is a tool, you know, like, I will confess that often I am like, would I be able to look my friends who are not white in the eye and say, like, this is what I did in this situation. And I will use that as like a barometer sometimes, which is like, you know, probably levels of fucked up as well. I don't know. I'm like, I'm curious. I'm curious about that, you know, and, and just in general, your thoughts on friendship as a site of some of this work if there's a potential for positivity as a, rather than excuse making. Absolutely. I mean, I think one of the kind of interruptions of, of segregation and the messages of segregation, I mean, most white people live segregated lives and in particular from black people. Right. Like two thirds, I think, or something. Yeah. Of white people have no, right. have no friends that are, are not white. Is that right? Like two yes. thirds? Two, I think higher. Or, I think yeah. About 75%. Um, or, you know, this is very superficial, my coworker kind of, kind of thing, right? And, mm-hmm. and I want white people to understand that every moment you spend in white space is a deeply active moment of socialization. So white space is not racially neutral. And that's another thing that a lot of white people seem to mm-hmm. think. If you ask them kind of how has your race shaped your life, they'll tell a story about a, a friendship, a relationship, an interaction, a moment. And again, what that reveals is how deeply we think of race as what they have. And if they're present or we're thinking or talking about them, then those are racial moments. And we have this inability to think about whiteness or white space as racial moments. But white space is teeming with race. Mm -hmm. And every moment that I'm 
in the white space, I'm being reinforced in probably the most profound message of all, and that is that there's no inherent loss to me. Notice that white space tends to be termed good. If somebody tells me, oh, this is a good school, I know it's a white school. If they tell me this is a good neighborhood versus a sketchy neighborhood, I know it's a white neighborhood. Wow, what a message, right? The absence of people of color is what makes that space good. Wow. And I've got that message my entire life. It's deeply internalized within me. So one of the most powerful ways that I have tried to counter that socialization is to build those relationships. So that's really key. And that doesn't free me of racism. It's better than not having relationships across race, but it doesn't mean that I don't run racism in my relationships. And so when I'm in front of a mixed group, I'll often ask people of color, do you have white people in your life whom you love deeply and who on occasion reveal their racist worldview to you? on occasion run a racist pattern at you? And they all say, yes, of course. So we can't use it to, again, exempt ourselves. We can't use it as our evidence. But yes, it's one of the powerful actions we can take, right? And not in a using way, right? Oh, God, I need, I need a black friend. Let's go. Oh, there's one in my place. You know, it needs to be sincere and genuine and probably going to come out of putting ourselves in situations that aren't necessarily comfortable to us. I think the other thing you said that resonated for me was the humanity then that you, that you see, right? So I hear a joke or a comment and I see my beloved friend Deborah's face. And I've seen the pain on her face that that joke or comment causes, and I cannot participate anymore. I was not raised to see the humanity of people of color. I don't think white people are raised to see that. And so it's also a powerful contradiction to that. And like you, I asked myself, yeah, I mean, what if Deborah was standing here right now and she witnessed me being silent? Oh, God, right? I'm out of my integrity. Right. Am I betraying the specific person I love as opposed to the question of like, am I not doing right by some high minded ideal? Like, I think that that that's kind of what I'm getting at. Yeah. And I think we think, well, it's all white people. So it didn't hurt anybody to make the comment. And what I would say is, oh, you just let white supremacy circulate in the culture. It did impact every single person who participated in it, including you through your silence. You just participated in white solidarity. That impacts the society we're members of and and the experiences that then people of color have when they interact with us. Mm -hmm. We have to understand it as active. People of color don't need to be present for that to be impacting us. I think a lot of, you know, our conversation today has defaulted a little bit to like a black-white false binary Mm -hmm. talking about race. And I would really love to hear you speak to the ways that white fragility plays out or in kind of explicitly viewing race for what it is, which is not just like black or white. (laughs) And like how, how these issues are complicated or changed when you really consider that. Yeah, I actually don't think it's a false binary. I used to be really careful, you know, don't don't reinforce this black white, you know, thing. But I am at a place in, after this many years talking to white people, there are bookends and white is on one end and mm-hmm. black is on the other. I do believe in the white mind, the ultimate racial other is black. You know, I, I think about it as 
I was raised to be functionally illiterate on racism. And part of gaining some literacy, and that's not finished, but part of that has been to understand both the collective kind of experience that people of color have through white supremacy, but also the differences, right? What I've internalized about Asian heritage people is different than what I've internalized about, say, African heritage people. And even that umbrella Asian is part of the way that that racism works, right? Kind of collapse this incredibly diverse group. And they've been positioned differently in relation to whiteness. And the closer you are along that spectrum between those two bookends to one end or the other, that will shape your experience. There are certain groups of color that white people are more comfortable with. It does not mean they don't experience racism and that I don't need to understand how, but white people are more comfortable with Asian heritage people. Uh, heritage people in large part because of the racist stereotypes that we have (laughs) and how that also functions to further put black people down. But there's a really hard question that Asian heritage people have to ask themselves, which is who have I aligned with? Have I aligned with whiteness or have I aligned with black folks? Where have I put my advocacy and what does anti-blackness look like among my group? Because anti-blackness cuts across all groups of color, even black people. The darker you are, the more compounded is the oppression. So that's the way I think about it. I imagine some people will hear that as invalidating the racism other groups experience. I don't see it as invalidating it, but I, I hope I've made clear why I'm comfortable talking about it the way I have. And finally, where can people find your work and all of these resources? Well, the book is available from a range of of sources. Of course, you know, indie booksellers, I would always want you to go to first, but certainly it's available on Amazon. If you go to my website, robindiangelo.com, it's one word, and D'Angelo is spelled D-I. And then under the tab publications are all of my articles. And um, just thank you so much. Thank you so much for doing this. And last question, I realize, um, who are some of the other people who are doing this work and writing and thinking, particularly people of color whose work that you'd recommend? I'm sure it's on your website, but I would love a few names shout out as well. Please look up Resma, R-E-S-M-A-A, Minicum, My Grandmother's Hands, Healing from Racial Trauma. He's a black man, MSW, you know, social worker, and he specializes in racial trauma. And this book is just beautifully written for kind of all groups. He talks about, you know, white supremacy causes trauma uh, in the white body mm. also. And as you're reading, he, he actually talks you through exercises, like what's going on in your body right now. It's just a beautiful book. Carol Anderson's White Rage. And also Ibram Kende, K-E-N-D-E, also won the National Book Award, Black Scholar, Stamped from the Beginning, The Definitive History of Racist Ideas in America, and then Ijeoma Oluo, So You Want to Talk About Race. Awesome. Robin, thank you so much for taking all this time today. Oh, you're so welcome. Miss mm, Robin, still shaking the table. <laughs> How did you feel about that part where she said, just because you have a podcast co-host who is a woman of color doesn't absolve you? I was like, Robin, exactly. I mean, yeah, Miss Robin gets it. It's also like not a thing where, okay, we did an episode about white fragility and it's over. Like white fragility affects my life every single day. It dictates like a lot of the choices that I make and and how I feel about myself and the you know, and how I'm allowed to deploy my own emotions 
And so, you know, I just like, it is not a one-off. <laughs> it is also like a very painful thing to talk about. Yeah, and you mentioned the fact that Rachel Cargill does not have a best-selling book, but she does have a lecture series called Unpacking White Feminism. Everybody um, should pay to go to that. <laughs> I mean, yeah, like a Herculean unpacking task. <laughs> um, and she she uh, has all that info at rachelcargill.com. We'll link to it in the show notes. Um, and Robin D'Angelo also has a ton of resources. You know we are such fans of reading in this family. Mm, um, reading saves lives. <laughs> like things that are like, real 12 step, like literally like lists of questions to ask yourself, like things that you should take out a piece of paper and write down your answers to, to examine yourself or questions that you should maybe pose in the racialized space of your all white friend group and talk about together. Um, if that happens to be your scenario. While you were reporting, um, this episode, as they would say, mm -hmm. did you learn anything new? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that I, um, I have like a personal, like, Unpacking the strands between what do I do with my own channels of power, essentially, plus like the the task of listening and feeling like I am not just like hearing or like clicking, but like truly taking in with the task of like accountability and verbalizing. Like, I think that that balance of those things, the part of my conversation with Robin where she was talking about only listening, not being enough and like saying like I'm an introvert, like not being acceptable, <laughs> um, things like that. Are very I'm like easy. when it comes to race, I am an introvert. I mean, what white person isn't? <laughs> frankly, like, like, I do not get my energy from you other people. <laughs> Jesus. And I definitely am guilty of this to like worrying about like, is this the right thing to say at the right time? That's where I feel the real talk of like, what is what is like the balance between all of those things? And like the balance should always weigh heavier on speech and action, I think is like the takeaway. I don't hear this kind of real talk from people who are not um, people of color. So it's like, it takes a moment to absorb. But yeah, I agree. I think that like the place where people, and the thing about it that's like nuts is that if you are like, if you are not a man and you do not benefit from like the privileges of, uh, you know, like of patriarchy in that way, you know that like somebody saying that they are hearing you is very different than somebody doing something to support you. Mm -hmm. Like you already know that. So that's the framing that I always think. I was like, somebody is always somebody else's white man. So <laughs> you need to figure out the ways that you are doing that. Sure. Um, but yeah, this is cool. I'm excited. Uh, I'm excited to keep talking about it. Yeah. And I'm, I am also excited to keep talking about it. I've already given one copy of this book away to a friend. And like, it's one of those books I will probably give away many times. It is an academic book, but it, and it's like heavy on the real talk. So therefore like, you know, dense, there's like, an opportunity to examine yourself on literally every line if you're reading it as a white person. But I do, I do recommend it. And I recommend checking out the rest of the resources because you're right that this is not just a single episode. You can find us many places on the internet on our website, callyourgirlfriend.com. You can download the show anywhere you listen to your faves or on Apple Podcast, where we would love it if you left us a review. You can email us at callyrgf at gmail.com. We're on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at callyrgf. You can even leave us a short and sweet voicemail at 714-681-2943. That's 714-681-CYGF. Our theme song is by Robin. Original music is composed by Carolyn Pennypacker-Riggs. Our logos are by Kanisha Sneed. Our associate producer is Destry Maria Sibley. 
This podcast is produced by Gina Dalvac. See you in the resources section. I know. See you in the resources <laughs> section of the internet. Oh. <laughs>